This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are um, so grateful that uh, you want to speak to us and uh, you want to meet us. We pray that um, you will look upon our faith and look upon our desire, Lord, to know you as weak as it may be, as, as weak as these things may be. But Lord, we pray that uh, you will indeed honor what little faith that we have. And Lord, come and speak to us through your word. Bring us um, encouragement and bring us conviction. We ask this for the sake of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. We um, generally pay attention <coughs> to the Gospels here in this um, every week. But I think this week we will give a little more time uh, to the book of Acts uh, and the way the story uh, that we read in the book of Acts connects to the, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter, chapter 20. Actually, the, the lectionary this week was quite interesting uh, for the simple fact that um, all of the readings had some uh, very powerful overlapping themes. And uh, one of the themes, of course, was uh, Trinitarian. And all three passages, Acts, John, um, and uh, the book of Revelation, we read about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being active. And of course, this is um, something that we would expect, uh, not only in the ministry of Jesus, but uh, in the ministry of the church. Uh, and of course, in John's vision of the uh, glorified Jesus <clears throat> uh, in heaven. All of them deal with the forgiveness of sins, with the forgiveness of sins, um, and all passages have something to do with fear and uh, fearlessness. And um, just like to begin with Acts chapter five uh, and a tiny bit of historical context uh, to this passage. We're not sure that people uh, fully realize all of the implications of what's uh, going on here. But this is the early church uh, in conflict with the Sadducees. They're in conflict with the temple authorities. They're not in conflict with the Pharisees. They're not necessarily in conflict with the people. They're in conflict with that small group of families appointed by the Romans who were running the temple. Now the temple uh, in the time of Jesus had many problems. It was certainly corrupt or the leadership of the temple was corrupt. The priests were, not, were often not doing their job. But I need to remind you it was still a divine institution. It was still something that God ordained and despite its imperfections and its many blemishes, it was held in high esteem by the people and held in high esteem by Jesus and, of course, uh, the disciples themselves. As this becomes the, the major, you might say, focus or major place where they're going to be doing their, their 
uh, ministry. And uh, Jesus, when he comes to Jerusalem, comes to warn the nation that uh, they are heading towards destruction, that they need to repent. But he's especially tough and very hard on the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the leaders of the temple and the priests, uh, according to what we read uh, in the Old Testament, were the ones who were supposed to be, lead the people. <clears throat> well, the priests are not doing their job. And uh, when the priests, the Sadducees, uh, see that Jesus is a threat to them, to their theology, and to their money-making machine, the temple, then, of course, the Sadducees go out and have Jesus arrested and have Jesus crucified. If you notice carefully, you read carefully, for the most part, the Pharisees aren't involved in this. It is the Sadducees. In fact, the Pharisees, interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, they come to the defense of the church twice. They save the church twice, once with Peter and once with Paul. Okay, so the Pharisees aren't always so black. Maybe they're not always so white. Um, and so Peter, uh, John are brought uh, in front of uh, the Sadducees and uh, they are speaking fearlessly. Okay, they're speaking without fear. Um, and they tell the Sadducees, they tell these temple authorities, remember Pilate has gone home and these, uh, uh, these Sadducees are now these temple authorities, temple aristocracies, these are the, 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 uh, the top authorities in Jerusalem. They tell them something um, that uh, should cause us to stand up or to sit up and think very carefully. They say, we really can't obey you. We have to obey God and not men. Now, how can they say such a thing? Because a few weeks before, what were they doing? They were cowering. They were afraid. They locked the door for the, so, so the, fear of the, the fear of the Jews. Well, none of the Jews were after them, but they were so afraid that they were living behind a locked door. So what turns them into such courageous, uh, such courageous men and women? What, what is the change that takes place in the early church? And I need to remind you that in our society, uh, and many times, uh, although it's changing, especially in the West, it's been very easy for us to say, perhaps, well, I'm going to obey God and I'm not going to obey men. And oftentimes this is set out of some kind of spirit of rebellion or spirit of hostility. But there's no rebellion here. There's no rebellion uh, as the, uh, in the early church. They're not doing it to thumb up their nose at the establishment. They're simply saying that we cannot uh, obey uh, at times the rule of the human authorities, which is, again, can be very difficult in many different circumstances because you're saying, I don't want to fit in or I can't fit in, I can't conform, I can't go along with the majority. And so often we as human beings are, you might say, our default is not to stick out, not to be different, uh, not to make waves or to make trouble, but just to go along with everybody else. 
But these uh, early uh, apostles, they can't do that. They have to say no, just like sometimes we have to say no. And in an age where the culture is so powerful and magnified thanks to social media, yes, Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, thanks to, um, the, you might say, the postmodern thinking or the godlessness that pervades uh, in the universities and businesses <clears throat> in the world of entertainment, taken together with this growing kind of ethnic nationalism, yes, that says if you want to fit into our, you know, for example, Hindu nationalism in India, which is becoming very militant and very violent, basically they say if you want to fit in, you've got to be a Hindu. You can't be a Christian. You can't be a Muslim. You have to be like us. And it's, by the way, it's that same spirit that Jesus account, uh, encounters uh, in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 4, was in, when he's in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he has something good to say about Gentiles. And they say to him, come on, Jesus, aren't you from around here? Aren't you one of us? Don't you know how we feel about Gentiles? Don't you know how we feel about Germans? Don't, know, don't you know how we feel about um, Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, whatever it may be. Come, get with the program, Jesus. And uh, this is the pressure that's uh, on believers in every generation. And in some generations like ours, the pressure is much more and it's much greater. And we have to have that ability sometimes to stand up and say no. But it takes courage. And where does that courage come from? Again, a few weeks, maybe it's a few months, I don't know if it's years, these same, uh, these same men who stand up to the Sadducees and the ruling authorities, they, are, they lock the door because they're afraid. They're shaking. You might say that they're in the league of trembling Israelites. Yes? And what is it that changes them so radically that they can now say no to the most powerful uh, institution in Jerusalem and eventually will give their lives? Can, you say, can we say that it's meeting with the risen Jesus? I can say yes. It's meeting the risen Jesus, seeing the risen Jesus, seeing Jesus, at least in the case of the, uh, the book of Revelation, seeing Jesus in his glory. Because the book of Revelation and the revelation that is given <coughs> to the church isn't, I'm going to get into trouble for this, the, the main purpose is not to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. The main purpose is to prepare the church for persecution and to prepare the church, to give the church the grace and the ability to endure and to be faithful in the most difficult possible, the most difficult of times. And once when we get a glimpse exactly of who Jesus is, that certainly will embolden us and give us encouragement. And all of us, and I think in our prayer life and the way that uh, we spend time in adoration, you know, should ask for that uh, vision. We should get, I'm not necessarily speaking of a literal vision, but ask for that understanding, that insight, that revelation of who exactly Jesus is. 
that he's not a crucified first century rabbi, that he's something so much more. And is it the Holy Spirit? Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And I would say yes. I would say yes. You know, it is indeed the Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit given primarily in this gospel? We're not going to talk about every uh, instance of the Holy Spirit. If you want to do that, you can go to the Wednesday night Bible study. And Aaron will explain pneumatology to you. Will you not, Aaron? <clears throat> the, the doctrine of the Spirit. Or you can listen to Aaron on the, on the podcast. But in John's Gospel, the Spirit is given so the disciples can be sent, empowered and sent into the world. The Holy Spirit is, is for, for, for going, for going out. And what's the message? The message is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, is that when these apostles stand before the Sanhedrin, they don't come with a message of vengeance. They don't come with a message of God's going to get you or God's going to, you know, spank you or beat you up. Or do Their message is one of mercy. It's not one of vengeance. And that too, that too takes uh, a revelation. That's not, some, that's not something that's so easy to offer mercy, to, to offer mercy to their enemies, to offer mercy to our enemies. You know, it doesn't come from reading a book. Where does it come from? Again, all of us need to, like those early disciples, see the, the risen Jesus in his glory, wounded yet still glorified, okay? Jewish still, and yet um, for all of uh, a person who identifies with all of humanity. And yes, we need the, we need the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, notice that uh, in Acts 5, um, and well, in John's Gospel, of course, the Holy Spirit is breathed. But how do you get the Holy Spirit uh, as, in the way that Peter speaks to the Sanhedrin? It says the following, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. They were responsible for the death of Jesus, not the entire Jewish people, by the way. And, and why Jewish people today are blamed for um, the death of Jesus is beyond me. I, I don't know that people blame, point fingers at Holland or Dutch people today for virtually inventing the slave trade. Huh? Um, and then it goes on to say, um, it says, God has exalted him to his right hand to be prince and savior. You know the word prince in Hebrew is a nasi, and it is a synonym for the Messiah. It's a synonym for the Messiah. A hundred years after Jesus, there was a Jew, false Jewish Messiah by the name of Bar Kokhva, Shimon Bar Kokhva. And he used to hint at his Messiahship by signing his letters, Shimon Bar Kokhva, Nasi Israel, the Prince of Israel. So here Peter is... Uh, 
Peter is uh, telling them that Jesus is a messianic figure, okay? So he's Messiah and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things and also um, we are his witnesses to these things and so also is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Now when we come to Christ, God does give us the Holy Spirit. But in order to be filled with the Spirit, in order to have that continual presence of the Spirit, it requires obedience. And obedience to the words of Jesus. Okay? And so, certainly by having the Holy Spirit and being obedient, it's going to bring about a transformation from fear to courage. But there's one other thing, and I think perhaps maybe it might be the most important. And um, of course, Jesus encounters in the gospel, he encounters Thomas. And Thomas says he doesn't believe. And interestingly enough, Thomas wasn't thrown out of the community. They didn't beat him up for having his doubts. Um, they didn't, uh, you know, hold an ecclesiastical trial, you know, and condemn him because he was struggling with his belief. And perhaps that's a model for us uh, in our communities today. Uh, and so the gospel goes on to, to um, tell us that at the end, um, the gospel writer um, does something very unusual. He stops telling a story. He stops, tell, stops telling us a story about Jesus. And he then turns and addresses the audience a little bit like a shock, that if you're ever in a play or a movie where they stop and, uh, or in the middle or maybe at the end, they, uh, the actors uh, turn to you and start addressing you or start talking to you, all of a sudden it's kind of jarring. And John says to us, hey, I wrote all of these things so that you may believe and that you may have eternal life. Now, I believe, from my perspective, what's really important in all, what's the, maybe the most important in all this, and of course you can disagree and always look at it from a different angle, is this, um, is this uh, injunction, right, to believe. Because Jesus tells Thomas to believe, not to be unbelieving. And But what does it mean to believe? And while I know we've uh, mentioned this many times in this church, but if you're new or if you're forgetful like I am, it's always good to be reminded, okay? What does it mean to believe? Because in the belief, I believe there's the transformation. Now, in the simple meaning of the word, the simple meaning of belief is in the present tense continual, trusting, relying upon. So to believe in Jesus means to rely upon him, okay, in a continual way, not just once, not just when we came and asked Jesus into our heart or took our first communion or whatever, 
wherever we had our initiation, our beginning of our relationship into Christ, because it's something that, of course, that's ongoing or to rely upon. But, you know, even um, the... Um, John's Gospel, if you read, the, read, the, read belief or understand belief uh, and the way that it's used throughout the Gospel and the epistles of John, really that belief is an active commitment to a person. An active commitment to a person. And Jesus, John, at the end of the Gospel says, if we want eternal life, divine life, now I'm not talking about life that happens when we go to heaven, because as we all know, John 17, 3 says, eternal life begins in this, in this world and continues on after we die. And Christians have been really good about talking about life after death, which is really important. Especially the older you get, the more you think about dying. And the more you think about uh, the issue of life after death and eternity and so on and so forth. It's, it's uh, I'm sure all... Everyone over 50 will, can testify to that, or everyone over 60 or 70 or 80, I don't know, right? But this is, ta we're talking about life before death. Is there life before death? Or do we just <clears throat> live in fear? Actually, do we live like those uh, 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 disciples? Do we live behind a locked door? Yeah? And are we afraid? Afraid of life? Afraid of death? Afraid of the future? Afraid of hearing God's voice? Afraid of uh, sacrificing or giving? Okay? Afraid of cancer? Yes? Or can we believe? Can we rely upon? Can we trust? Can we abide in Jesus? Can we actively commit our lives to his words or to his commandments and thus receive divine life? I think that's what transforms the disciples. It's coming into that relationship because ultimately the resurrection, as we said last week, it's not a doctrine so much. I know we love to fight about it and argue about what's going to happen and when the resurrection is going to happen and how the resurrection is connected to the general resurrection is connected to us going to be with the Lord after we die. Some of this is confusing. Others of us just like to argue for the sake of arguing. But my dear friends, first and foremost, the resurrection is a person. It's meeting and encountering a person. And that person commands us to believe. He says, don't be like Thomas. Don't, don't be distrusting. Don't be uncertain. Don't be unfaithful. Because the idea of belief in John's gospel is a strong connection with, with, with faithfulness. Yes? Don't be like Thomas. So how do we get this courage to unlock the door and to allow ourselves to be sent 
Because that's what God wants to do with every one of us. He wants to send us. <clears throat> yes, he wants to send us out with the message. And that message is a message that he can give eternal life and he will forgive sins. Yeah, how do we unlock the door? And by the way, you don't have to go to China and you don't have to go to Zimbabwe and you don't have to go to work with the prostitutes in the uh, streets of Istanbul. Going might mean that you go to your neighbor, yes, who lives in the same building as you. Going might mean that uh, you reach out to people who are struggling in your church. Okay. But the point of that Holy Spirit and Jesus breathing on those disciples is to go. We can never go if we're afraid. Afraid of the culture, afraid of what might happen to us, afraid of the devil, afraid for our children, overly worried about our pension, worried about what people might say about us on Facebook. Yes? Worse things can happen, can they not? My um, suggestion is, is that we first always start in uh, our relationship with Jesus. We ask, uh, ask him to allow us to glimpse his glory. Yes? To see, who, see him for who he really is that uh, we ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit, keeping in mind that there's a relationship between obedience and being filled with the Spirit, which, by the way, is evident for us in the book of Ephesians. And thirdly, we need to ask him, yes, to give us the grace to help us to trust him, to rely on him, to commit ourselves to him, yes, to abide in him, and to have that relationship which becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's that relationship that will transform us and enable us to overcome our fears and to be faithful to Jesus the Messiah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, call upon you and we ask you again in our weakness, Lord, in our double-mindedness, in our distractions, Lord, even in our addictions, in our false way of thinking, in our wrong worldviews, Lord, in the way that we love our sin. Lord, in all of these things, we do pray that you would come to us and reveal yourself. Strengthen us, Lord. Give us that grace to not only be obedient, but to uh, seek a relationship with you, a, a deeper relationship with you, the resurrection and the life. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.